production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. As a clinical psychologist, Dr. Nicole LaPera, better known as the holistic psychologist, often found herself frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. Wanting more for her patients and for herself, she began a journey to develop a united philosophy of mental, physical and spiritual health that equips people with the tools necessary to heal themselves. Nothing short of a paradigm shift, Dr. Nicole LaPera's teachings empower the individual to break free from trauma cycles and create who they want to become. Nicole says all emotions are healthy, getting stuck within them is not. In this powerful exchange, Nicole and I discuss dealing with anger and fear, the power of the subconscious, and more broadly, the journey to self-acceptance and self-love. My number one foundational habit that I suggest to all of us out there, because autopilot is real, for a lot of us, that's the reason we're stuck. Those habits and patterns that once served us aren't serving us in our current environment, yet we're going to continue to live in them until we become conscious. Change doesn't happen to us. We have to create it. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Dr. Nicole LaPera is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, How to Do the Work, recognizing your patterns, heal from your past and create yourself. There are so many pearls of wisdom in this exchange, but the most powerful lesson imparted is the importance of thinking well and understanding that only you can heal yourself. May this conversation with Nicole empower you to realize that everything you seek is inside of you. You just need to be willing to go within to find it. Nicole LaPera, better known as the holistic psychologist, you have your amazing book, which is titled How to Do the Work. But I want to start off by asking you, why did you decide to get into psychology? Yeah, so my my journey into psychology, um, as far as I consider it and think about it, is as long as I can remember. And what I mean when I say that is, Um, I was very much the little child who really wanted to make sense of the world around me, namely the people. You know, as we begin to meet people, peers, develop friendships, I saw the differences, you know, people behaving differently. And I think from an intuitive place, my instinct was always, oh, it's so interesting. What, What makes people similar to myself and dissimilar? And I'm an avid reader. I always have been. So, you know, at around the young adult age, when you could get your hands on those books about people, about relationships, about psychology, in a sense, I really dove into it. Uh, I went to high school. I took the one psychology class in my high school and then promptly enrolled in undergraduate here as a declared psychology major. So as far as I'm con- I consider it, I had that intuitive ping. I was very interested in people. However, I've really seen um, a shift in the way that I've been working, um, coming very much out of a traditional system where we were mainly taught there was two ways to heal in our field. When you have something going on emotionally or psychologically, um, we're given two main interventions here in the States, at least. And the one is talk therapy. You go, you find a supportive therapist, you seek to understand yourself, your feelings, and of course, develop tools to better navigate whatever issues you're having in the world. And that's the camp that I went down, the training I pursued. And then there's the medical model, right? Some of us had the belief and we have genetic issues. We have deficits um, in some neurotransmitters and we might benefit from pharmaceutical intervention. So I very much walked down that path for a very long time. I had a clinical practice. I had people coming in week after week and really informed by those people coming in week after week and using the word that came up more often than not in my work with them is I'm still stuck. 
I have all of this insight, all of this awareness, all of these tools that now you and I talk about, Nicole, each and every week, yet I go out into my home, into my relationships, and I'm not actually getting better. I'm still stuck in those old patterns. So from that point of disempowerment for myself as well, I'm someone who's known anxiety as long as I can remember. I've been in both formats of treatment, and I even found it hard to become unstuck. So my journey really began into the way that I work now by really trying to understand why are so many of us struggling to heal or to get better? And really those questions evolved into the way that I now work much much more holistically, um, really integrating the reasons why I believe we are stuck um, into empowering steps to begin to create change. When did you first meet anxiety in your life? I don't remember a time, Sarah, where I didn't have anxiety. I have really, I have very few memories of childhood. Um, and I talk about this often and the reasons for why some, so many of us might struggle to remember, as, remember aspects of our childhood. And for me, my reason is really wrapped up in that anxiety. Um, when we're really overwhelmed as children, what some of us do to cope is we, we detach from our present environment, from our present surroundings. So I really understand for me, that's what I started to do very early. Um, and when you're not really present, you don't have those memories to go back to. Though like many of us, I do have sticking point memories as I call them and what they looked like for me were very anxiety driven. Um, I had a lot of health related fear. I had a sister at the time who was 15 years older and who had actual you know, medical crises that were happening. So I remember being a young child, always fearful, always worried that something might happen to my sister, might happen to my mom. For me, a lot of these worries came at night. I have memories of laying in my bed, not sleeping in childhood with these racing thoughts of what was that bump? Is someone breaking into my home? Um, and again, like I said, as long as I go back with the few memories I have, that kind of is what comes up. So for me, I understand that anxiety, like I said, was that overwhelming emotion. I see very similar habits and patterns in my mom and my sister, very anxious humans who feel chronically overwhelmed. And again, like I said, that's when I began to detach um, to, to cope, to tolerate. And then of course I carried with me all of the accumulated consequences of that detachment that many of us do. Kind of, I use the onion analogy, forming this kind of onion around the root, which for me was overwhelming feelings in childhood that didn't have um, a secure base to safely navigate them. How have you worked through your anxiety now? My anxiety really kind of was a two path process. Um, and very much like a lot of us are told, you know, think different thoughts. If you don't think worrying thoughts, you know, you can shift how you, you experience your worry. Um, I tried very much those traditional models. I heard about the power of being present in the current moment, being, you know, shifting or reframing our anxious thoughts so that we don't feel anxious as a result. And again, I, I kept feeling stuck um, because, and I come to realize why many of us are stuck is because we're not involving our body. A lot of us, especially in our field, like I was trained to, we work from what we call a top-down model with this idea that if you think differently, so for instance, if I don't think stress, stressful thoughts, I won't feel stressful. However, a lot of us miss the reality that just as much as our mind is communicating with our body and can be incredibly powerful, those reframes can work. However, we need to incorporate our body because our body is just as much communicating with our mind. And a lot of us are living in a body that is dysregulated, a nervous system that can't actually cope with the stress. And we become stuck in a state of activation that no matter how much we reframe our thoughts, we can't actually change the way we feel. And again, we remain stuck. So I, my shift in my experience of anxiety really began for me when I incorporated my body, when I became aware of how dysregulated my body was, how for me, I was chronically living in a fight or flight state, continuing to send those messages of stress right to my mind. And that's why no amount of rethinking or reimagining was helpful. Um, and that's, of course, now how I very much advocate. And in the pages of my book, you'll read about that holistic model, really understanding the role our body is playing so that we can now not only address it from the top down, but from the bottom up. Yeah. How does the body become deregulated? 
So our body, it always seeks to come back into a state that we call homeostasis Mm. or balance, feeling peaceful, feeling calm. And even for some listeners, you might be thinking, what do you mean? I never feel peaceful. I never feel calm. Our body, that's our resting state as a human. We're receptive. We're open to the environment. We more or less feel safe and we feel able to navigate or tolerate the stress that happens. And again, when we don't have someone to help us in childhood, make sense of the moments of overwhelm, maybe even help our body come back from a stress state like fight or flight back into that calm, receptive state. We actually need others in in childhood. We are completely dependent, our nervous system in particular. And what I mean when I say that is when a child cries, it's dysregulated. It's Mm. in, it's having a need and it doesn't, it can't meet itself, meet that need on its own. So it's reliant on a caregiver coming in in a more or less calm state and helping the child to identify what's wrong, feeding it, burping it, changing it, and then allowing that nervous system to go back into that calm. Now, of course, for those of us who didn't have that attuned parent, maybe didn't even have a parent present, mm. or if the parent who was present was so anxious themselves, using my own family as an example, their nervous system was just as dysregulated as my crying nervous system in infancy. And when we don't have that, our body actually doesn't go back into that calm state. And a lot of us remain stuck. Even after the event goes away, even after the stress goes away, our body doesn't essentially know how to come back into that calm. And this is why for so many of us, and it's very confusing because a lot of us, our circumstances have changed since childhood. We might live in a completely different geographic location. We definitely have different tools available to us in terms of our maturity, maybe even in our relationships. However, some of us, our bodies have never downshifted from that nervous system state of activation. So like I was sharing earlier, circumstances remain outside of us and inside we feel and carry that dysregulation with us, which is why we remain stuck in those same patterns. Your book is titled How to Do the Work. Can you explain to us what is the work? Yes. And this really harnesses um, kind of the second realization that I was having in my practice. So in addition to the fact that I was seeing the limitations of working only from the top down, right? Like I was sharing, incorporating the body up. I was also really met with an incredibly powerful part of our mind that is called the subconscious, Mm. which is where all of the habits and patterns are stored. And what happens is from these really insightful moments in a great therapy session where I'm able to unpack, right? The things that happen in my life, how they don't serve me and the new thing I'm going to do differently into the future to create the change that I want. All of that happens from a different part of our mind, a place where consciousness lives. It's actually right behind our forehead and it allows us to begin to make new choices in the current moment. However, usually once we leave that therapy room, once we leave that moment of insight, the place where most of us are living our day-to-day life from might be a word that listeners might have heard of. It's called autopilot. Mm. It's from that subconscious part of our mind where all of those older habits and patterns are stored. All of the things that we typically think, all of the ways that we typically feel, the things that we do to cope with those thoughts and feelings live in our subconscious conscious. So in session, right, we're conscious, we're aware, we're able to make new plans of action. And chances are by the time that moment in life comes, we're so dropped into our autopilot that we do the same thing we always do. We think the same thing we always think. So the title of the book really was born out of that realization that we need to, what we really need to be doing is, of course, those moments of insight are part of the story for many of us of healing. However, it's those daily actions. We actually need to create new pathways Mm. in that subconscious We now know we can. We know that our brain is what we call neuroplastic or simply that it can change. It can lay down new neural networks. However, it can't do that or it can only do that with the power of repetition. So I began to then work with my clients in that new way, right? Empowering them to begin to create new habits, right? It's not enough to do something new one or two times. This is what many of us meet when we have a transformative weekend. We change our life from top to bottom and we maybe do that for a couple of days or weeks. And before we know it, we're right back in that old autopilot. 
because what we really need to be doing is making and forming new habits. And again, the title of the book was an extension of that idea. Doing the work is doing that daily work to be conscious to ourselves, to be conscious to the reality that we all have an autopilot that usually doesn't serve us and to create then the choice in those daily moments to begin to do that new thing that can then become a new habit over time. How do we start creating new habits? New habits begin um, through a practice that I call a small daily promise. Because another fact about our subconscious, which is why it makes it so hard to change, is that our subconscious actually loves that familiar, mm. the familiarity of those habits and patterns. Our brain, to keep us safe, loves and almost needs to know what comes next. Yes. Even if what comes next is a terrible outcome <laughs> that we want to avoid at all costs, we get the certainty of knowing more or less that that's what I can expect. That's because that's always what's come next. So anytime we begin to do anything unfamiliar, even if it is walking in a new direction that we consciously want for ourselves, it feels some degree of uncomfortable for us because that's our subconscious's way of saying, wait a minute, you're not sure you want to go in this new direction. This is unknown. I can't predict what comes next. And it could be something worse than the things that we already know. And so many of us from that survival-driven place desire the path, the devil, whatever language you want to use, the relationship that we're familiar with. So the pathway out into creating a new habit is acknowledging that that, I call it resistance, that discomfort will be there, that just as much as many of us lived with overwhelm in childhood that wasn't helpful, we want to avoid that same overwhelm now. That's why I say one small daily promise, not 10 new things that we can white knuckle for those three to four weeks as long as we can manage it, one new thing. Because it's as much as it's about whatever the new promise might be, of course, you can make a new promise that will help you create change. It's about the action of keeping that promise, the action of showing yourself alignment that I can continue to do a new thing, even if it feels uncomfortable. Because that's the place, like I was saying, where many of us revert back. We take that discomfort to mean, mayday, don't continue on. And we then gravitate toward that familiar. So habits begin when we keep those promises, not just make them each and every day, even if it is difficult, because we're empowering ourselves when we do that to know that we can create change, even when it feels uncomfortable. I mean, I feel that change is always feels quite uncomfortable. And for me, I talk to a lot of people in my work about when we move into the unknown, we're moving into the field of all possibilities. When we're in the known, we are in the stale repetition of daily habits, right? The worn out, worn out known, but we stay in it because it is, it is absolutely comfortable. How did you, when you started to get into the work, what were some of the daily habits that you started doing that helped you on this path? So my first number one foundational habit after I came to the realization that that autopilot for me was real, right? I had been checking out, I call it my spaceship, (laughs) from that point of overwhelm since I was a child. And that created an adult that, yes, I was very savvy at life. I had what one might call a very successful life. I kept the job. I kept partnerships. I existed in it. I even had conversations with people around me. However, I did so from such a disconnected place. And I got so good at it. I wasn't just like in childhood. I wasn't actually present to the environment around me. I remained, it remained difficult for me to form memories. It became a joke in my friend groups in high school. Oh, Nicole never remembers what is happening. And I carry that with me to adulthood because I never really was paying attention. My attention was either in, you know, kind of rehearsing things that stressed me out that morning. I love to anticipate stress in the future, or I just was somewhere else, just not really present here. So my number one foundational habit that I suggest to all of us out there, because autopilot is real. And for a lot of us, that's the reason we're stuck. Those habits and patterns that once served us aren't serving us in our current environment yet. We're going to continue to live in them until we become conscious. Change doesn't happen to us. We have to create it. Mm. And we create it by becoming really present to what is happening. What do I do first thing in the morning? What am I thinking? How am I behaving in the world around me? So my foundational habit became creating a new practice of consciousness. What does it mean to be conscious? 
fully present. For some of us, that means to be present in our body. How does it even feel to be in my body right now? What are my muscles feeling like? How is it to be in this chair extending outward? What about in the room around me? I have some lights coming in on me, right? What's going on? Where am I here and now? And because this is a habit that many of us aren't used to practicing, we can be helped by reminders on our phone. For one of the major things I did for myself was I set a reminder for a random time. I called it a consciousness check-in for during my waking day. And I would do this every morning and I wouldn't know what time my alarm would go off. And whenever it would go off, so say one one o'clock PM that afternoon, my alarm went off and I did two things in that moment. First, I noticed, well, what were you doing? What were you paying attention to? More often than not, it wasn't whatever I was doing in in the moment ahead of me. I was thinking, I was worrying, I was just sitting, staring. I wasn't really here, even if something was going on in the moment around me, even if I was attempting to work, having a conversation with someone. And then the next step is we want to do the work or embody the practice now of being conscious. So I did that. I learned how to use my body, use my senses, even just ask myself that, okay, Nicole, what are you feeling in this moment? What are you feeling in the room around you? How is your body? And then I built on those moments. Like I shared what started with one small daily promise. I started to do that just one time during my day. And then I built on that foundation. And for me and for everyone that is listening, that becomes that foundation for change. When we mm-hmm. become present to what we are doing, for some of us, that might be surprising in and of itself. We might think life looks different than it really does once we're present to it. Then that creates the space, like I say. And then I can start to assess, okay. How are these choices? How are these thoughts? How are these ways I'm being serving me? And when the answer is, as it is for a lot of us, they're not, or this other practice or habit would serve me better. Now we give ourselves the opportunity to make those new choices. You spoke before about something that I used to do a lot in my past, which is anticipating worry. And why do we do that? You might be going to work and you think, I'm going to see this person, they're going to be like this, or this person's going to do this. And you don't even realize that you're making up these stories that have never happened and may never happen in your head. And you've created this whole narrative to worry yourself. Why do we do that? Yeah. So our brain, um, it has many different functions. And one of the functions that it has is it's what we call a prediction maker. It needs to, like I said, anticipate what is going to happen Um, and everything, most things. And I talk a lot about our evolution and kind of the biology of us because that is very impactful. Most of all of these drives are to keep us alive, usually at a time in childhood, even if now, right, what we're imagining, what we're anticipating isn't really what's happening. Chances are it might have been at one time because what our brain uses to predict what could happen is what once did happen more or less on or around the same feeling or event. So in childhood usually is where this kind of tendency to predict comes. Um, And it comes again as a, it comes through an interaction between us and our environment. And if we live, when we live in environments that are unsafe to whatever degree they are unsafe or whatever consistency they are unsafe, We actually create a safety for ourselves in childhood. Again, usually the only way that we can by that anticipation, by playing the tape out, because sometimes we can be very adaptive by making that anticipation, right? If I know that when mom comes home, if my room isn't cleaned, I can't anticipate that mom will get upset and that will obviously dysregulate and upset me. I can become so attuned to the state that mom is in. I can clean my room and I can keep myself safe by having that anticipation in a sense. However, like I said, we continue to do that for the same reason, because that which once kept us safe, we believe will always keep us safe. We use the same events that happen as a prediction for what's going to happen next. And as you can all imagine, by even listening to this, we then remain stuck in those same cycles because what happens behind the scenes when we're thinking thoughts of worry, like I mentioned earlier, they're coming from a stressed out body and the stressed out body is communicating, I'm stressed. So your mind is doing the only thing it can do, looking for the next stressor, the conversation that you might have with your colleague tomorrow at work. And the more you're worrying about now that conversation that you might have tomorrow at work in an attempt you think to protect yourself, you're continuing that worry, Mm. continuing then to dysregulate your body, keeping you locked 
in that fight or flight, continuing to send those same signals. You're still stressed. You're still worried. Where's the stress? Oh, right. It's tomorrow. And that's why we get locked now in this thinking and feeling cycle around stress in particular, because we never break the chain. We never become fully present or we never teach our body that it is actually safe. So we never actually send different messages. You talk a lot about the mind-body-spirit connection. Where did the spirit part come in for you? So the spirit part has been an interesting aspect of my journey because uh, there was a very long time in my past being raised in, in a Catholic religion um, and in Catholic you know, schooling for a very long time um, and going, transitioning from that sort of mindset into the very much scientific mindset once I was on path to become uh, a psychologist, a practitioner of science in a sense. I very much started to look down on anything that felt religion based, anything I heard the word spirit or soul. It just didn't, it felt the word that I think a lot of us like to use. It felt very woo woo and didn't feel like it was resonating with me. So a decade ago, I never would have acknowledged um, the presence of something deeper, whether or not you want to give it a soul or a spirit or whatever. The name essence is another word. I think that's a little more neutral for some people. Um, I wouldn't even have explored the possibility. However, through my own journey of healing um, and through, of course, you know, bearing witness to so many other now um, global, international, other humans in their own journey of healing, I, I became very aware that there is something that makes each of us us. You know, we don't actually even know scientifically how to describe it um, or what it actually is fully yet. Um, there's a lot of mystery that still exists in science about this whole experience of being human. Yet the way I understand it is what is animating me, Nicole? You know, why, why am I me and whatever my quirks are and my interest, even the start of this conversation, why do you want to be a psychologist? Well, something was pinging and saying, yes, this is interesting to you. And Sarah, if you were standing next to me over here, you might not have gotten that exact same ping mm. because there's something different intrinsically that makes you you. It's that intuition, that inner compass, that guidance, again, whether you want to call it essence, soul, or spirit, it's the place from which... I make decisions that are in alignment with me. So that's what that ultimately means to me. And I believe it is an interactive communication, if you will, with our mind and with our body. However, so many of us are so disconnected from that place of inner knowing or so distrustful of that place that we don't actually use that as our point of reference. And so ultimately, if we want to illustrate from that um, onion analogy I offered earlier, the journey of healing, as far as I see it, is pulling back that layering, right? All of the body dysregulation, all of the trauma my body is carrying with me, peeling back then all of my mental, right? All of the stories and narratives, my ego, everything I've created that I think is me, that I've carried with me from childhood. Again, all of this lives in my subconscious, peeling back that and then exposing that deepest place. And that's what that spirit, that soul, that essence, whatever we want to call it is. That's where I believe that we um, empower ourselves to navigate through life. Because you'll also equally hear me talk about, especially here in the West too, a culture of outsourcing, of yeah. always looking for someone else who knows better, whether it's your best friend, your family, or an expert in any field. And while all of these people can offer, of course, some helpful information in some context. Really, it's it's us. This journey here is very unique. Even two humans living in the same environment in childhood can have two separate experiences of that in childhood. So that journey of uniqueness is really illustrated in that concept of essence, soul, spirit. Again, that thing that makes you, you and me, me, that we all want to reconnect with as our point, uh, our compass. How has connecting with your soul changed your life? Uh, so connecting with my soul, again, a decade ago, um, you would have never, Sarah, heard me using words like passion, like purpose. Yes, retrospectively, I'm able to say, yeah, intuitively, I wanted to be a psychologist. So I was finding something. I wouldn't have been shouting that from the rooftop so that I'm passionate about this. And I have a purpose in life and I'm interested and curious and this is what I'm doing. Um, so for me, pulling back those layers of conditioning allowed me to understand why I was so disconnected from that self. 
because I was overwhelmed in childhood, because I didn't have caregivers to help me make sense of the world because they themselves didn't know how. So as protection, I began that, that state of disconnection. Yes, I performed in the world. I performed in ways that I got validated. I performed. I was good at school. I wore all of these identities, yet I had no passion. I had no purpose. I had a successful practice, though. I might as well not have because it didn't light me up. I was very stressed all of the time. I didn't have that. So for me, my reconnecting with me, pulling back that conditioning, making new choices that were more in alignment with me, regulating my body allowed me to discover who I am. It allowed me to show up differently as a human who takes up space in relationships and as a human who does have a passion and a purpose um, that she very much wants to speak on. So as far as I'm concerned, this journey of healing changed and will continue to change my life as I continue to discover aspects of myself as I grow, as I age, as my relationships change over time. So for me, it's been completely transformational. Um, and it's why I really am so impassioned about talking about this holistic model of wellness, because so many times dysregulation, again, in our mind and bodies are keeping us disconnected from who we are. And that's an incredibly painful experience. Knowing what you do now and speaking as you have quite a bit about childhood and how you were raised and raised in a family that did have quite a bit of anxiety, for someone that's got young kids, what would you suggest would be the best way to raise kids to flourish? So I get this answer, this question uh, quite often, and I think I sometimes, um, you know, get, give an answer that that isn't the anticipated answer, because I know a lot of times for a very, very well-intentioned place, whether it's us talking about our children or our loved ones, you know, we want to know how to intervene, what to say, what to do, how to show them a different way. Of course, for children, that's, you know, part of the role of being a caregiver is to model life, you know, from top to bottom for our children. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us, like I was saying, we we look to these caregivers ultimately that that are don't have the tools themselves. So while it's very well intentioned to want to say or do the right thing, what impacts our children most is what are they seeing us do? Mm. How are they experiencing us in relationships? So my answer is right turning the focus not on how can I help my child in this moment? How can I help me? How can I remain in a regulated, safe body so that when my child is crying, I can be that safe, attuned caregiver who can show up, who can hold space so that we can explore what's going on with my child and therefore helping model that to them. Our children are watching. They're a sponge. They're seeing how we're dealing with, so to use this example, stress or anxiety. So we could be saying the right things to our child of how to navigate anxiety, though, if we're not doing that, if what we're doing when we're anxious or if we're always anxious, our child is going to be much more impacted by what they see. So my advice to any parents out there listening is always really um, emphasizing the importance and the impact that your own healing can offer your children that, you know, and the compassion for yourself first and foremost, because I know a lot of parents probably are listening and I do get, you know, oh my gosh, I can see all of the things and all of the ways I might be impacting my child and in a direction that I don't want to, I want to change now. Um, and we might carry a lot of shame. And the reason why I share these awarenesses, why we're stuck in the ways we're stuck, why maybe we can't be in that state of calm for our children yet and why that might have had consequences is because, again, we're all limited. We're all raised by humans who are limited by the tools that the humans that raised them provided them. And when we can offer ourselves that compassion that it's never too late, that our brain's ability to change happens throughout a lifetime. So no matter how old your children are, if you begin to show up, when you begin to show up differently, that's going to have the greatest impact than saying the right thing yes. in those particular moments. What I love about your book and the title of it, How to Do the Work, it kind of preaches a lot of what I say, which is the fact that we have to do the work. And I think sometimes a lot of people want a quick fix, like give me a meditation and I'll just start doing that. Or, you know, I'll go and do an hour course and then we'll see how we go. And I, I try to say, you need to actually study it properly. You need to start realizing what you're saying and changing your thought patterns and doing that kind of stuff. 
But can you explain to us, Nicole, how doing the work also takes time? Absolutely. And and what you're speaking again is that difference from why so many of us have maybe read books, you know, with great ideas, great concepts. Maybe we even saw great therapists and we have these tools, yet it is until we embody a new way of being, yes. until we begin to use those tools. So going back to even that first suggestion I gave, until we shift from autopilot to consciousness, right? Those tools are just ideas, they're concepts, they remain in a book. And for me, something that I always have thought is really important um, and has been lacking in some instances is that translation. How do I take these things that are concepts that, that are ideas into the actual things that I need to do differently each and every day? How do I embody the change? How do I begin to show up and make those new choices? So when we're talking about creating a new habit, like we said earlier, we have to do that thing now, make that new choice consistently, even if it is uncomfortable, which it will likely be, consistently then over time, right? Because the we, just even thinking from pure objective numbers, those of us who are you know decades old, however they might be, We've been firing those old networks for a very long time. Mm. We have the way that we are in our being. We have the thought, the habits we, we, we live every day, habits even existing in our thoughts, the way our body feels. They are so ingrained. They might as well be us. Though again, I assure you, they are not you. And when you get to become conscious and when you get to begin to then explore what is what choices, what habits, how are you continuing to create that old environment in your current environment now, it can be really painful. It's why a lot of us want to skip over that. We want to know because we are likely in a really deep stuck place, might be living the consequences of, again, that lifetime that we've now accumulated, it might be incredibly uncomfortable. So very naturally, I want to do one new thing and I want it to help me as of tomorrow. I want to start to feel better. Though again, a lot of times it, we really we have to see how we're showing up. We have to see the points where we're making choices that aren't serving us. And that's the longer, more uncomfortable process. When I shared that I my first habit was that consciousness check-in, I didn't just do that for 30 days. I'm still reminding myself each and every day I journal as a, as a practice. As for me, every morning when I journal, it's my daily reminder of continuing the change that I'm walking, continuing mm. to not live in my autopilot, even though it's changed a bit, my old habits are still there. And one of the things I write each and every morning still now, years after I began that journey is I am fully conscious and present in each of my moments during the day. So to speak to your point, it's a long-term journey. Yes. A lot of us have to sit in that consciousness building muscle mode for a very long time because once we're conscious, then we can, like I said, have the space to begin to then create other habits that serve us, peeling that onion back. Some of us might need to change how we're thinking, how we're navigating our relationships, how we're navigating our emotions. And then we evolve our journey. So I think about it like building foundations of these really long steps in a sense. And once we be, have our foundation of consciousness built into the forever future, then we can start to create new practices that over time, like we we're saying, will become a new habit. And it's not until you do it. It's not enough just to think the pathway yeah. through. It's living that pathway, actually showing your body that it doesn't have to be stressed like maybe it has been for decades, by actually teaching your body through breath work, through being conscious to the moment where maybe there isn't any threat happening, showing your body to that safety by using those tools and making those choices. Nicole, you know when you're on the path to your new self and you start to see a bit of turmoil in your life because you're moving towards maybe people call it a different vibration. And so things that don't match you on that start to fall away. But what I see with a lot of people and what has happened to me in the past is we start getting worried because even though you might want to progress in your life, you're still holding on to those old friends that have not served you for a long time or that job that you don't love, but you're too scared to move away from. How do we move forward on our path and let go of those things that aren't serving us, but do it in a way that we feel is gratifying and liberating? 
I love this question, Sarah, and you're actually asking it on the heels of, um, I have a virtual membership called the Self-Healer Circle. And each month we dive into a topic of healing and actually last month, so we just finished November, and the topic of last month was let go. Um, let go of loss and grief in particular, really highlighting what you're very beautifully describing here, the reality that as we shed, a lot of us, as we begin to shed and show our identities and show up differently, we see our relationships differently. And for some of us, many relationships we've carried for decades for our lifetime, right? we begin to consider new space, showing up in a new way, the relationship and its dynamic shifts. And that can bring another degree of loss. Mm. And anytime we're talking about change or doing things that are new or unfamiliar, that word I was using earlier, it can be really scary. It is going into that unknown. And for a lot of us, we, we don't know what's on the other side of it because we're so familiar with how we once were. So I really commend any human who's, who's on the path of transformation or even considering whether or not transformation or change is possible because already you're kind of shifting into a very unknown space. And like I was sharing earlier, as a human, we don't love the unknown and the unknown can be threats can be issues that we can't anticipate and we might not be able to confidently navigate. However, the byproduct of healing, of doing everything we talked about, becoming conscious to our moments, right? Learning how to regulate ourselves and navigate ourselves, doing so by developing a habit of one small daily promise that will empower ourselves to continue to create change despite whatever's happening around us. All of that, the incredible byproduct of that, of course, is now a life and new habits that you know better are much more aligned with what my body, my emotions, the relationships that I want for myself. We get the byproduct of all of that and we get the empowerment that comes beneath it. So even as we're shedding and letting go, so the process of letting go happens when we accept what is. And for a lot of us, that's accepting that what I thought this relationship offered me, it doesn't. Yeah. How I'm showing up is changing. I now have different needs or I want a dip- different depth, whatever it, whatever so for each person as they're healing, letting go allows us to accept that and then to continue to walk into that future that might be new, that might be unfamiliar and that might very much be scary for a lot of us. And w- one of the major reasons why Not only did I come online and create the Instagram account, um, looking for community, looking for other humans who were healing, who were thinking about the world the same way I was, who could maybe offer me those new relationships where I could be much more authentically me. That was a big inspiration for the Instagram account and for the self-healer circle. Um, So something that I urge us all to do as we're suffering and letting go of losses of aspects of ourself, a lot of us do then want to reach out and find the other humans that we can be more or differently connected to because we are an interpersonal species. Um, While I talk very much about how do we do the work individually to quote unquote heal ourselves, so much of the healing that we're doing is in our relationships with other people. And as some of us, like you're saying, are are rethinking or reimagining or showing up differently and changing the dynamics of old relationships, we feel compelled then to create new ones. Mm. Have you had to let go of a lot of things in your life on your journey? Oh, so, so much. I mean, for me, just from a personal standpoint, I had to let it, I had to let go of a lot of the old ways of being. Um, I had to, you know, create new habits, which meant restructuring even just the way my life looked, what time I went to bed, what time I got up, what I did in the hours between when I got up and what I went, when I, when I went to bed. And a lot of that brought a lot of discomfort, was very unfamiliar, um, made, resulted in me making choices that looked very different and came with different levels of discomfort to be reconnected to my body, to meet my body's needs, despite what's happening around me. So individually, in terms of my thoughts then too, and my beliefs, I let go of a lot of beliefs that I came mm. to realize I very much was holding on to and weren't serving me. Um, I let go of a lot of the way I showed up in the relationships. I showed up in my relationships for a very long time, seemingly for the other person. What I mean when I say that is, I always thought I was worrying about what whoever it was, my friend, my partner, my family need it, always trying to be conflict-free, keep the peace, show up what I thought was selflessly in service of them. Not to realize that 
I wasn't actually showing up in service of them at all. What I was trying to do was manage what they thought of me. I wanted them to think I was a nice, kind individual who was there and receptive and there to help their feelings or to be supportive of them, not realizing that what I was doing in the process of that was overstepping my needs sometimes, not honoring my limitations, not taking care of myself and my emotions, maybe not speaking my truth because of how I imagined it would be for them. So as I began to shift and change in that way, as I began to get more aligned with what my needs were, what my truth was, and to obviously walk through the discomfort then of expressing that to those around me, there was incredible loss um, that I chose and that were a byproduct of my relation of me being different in my relationships around relationships in general. Um, so yeah, loss and continuing to shed all of the ways in the world that I was is very much still a part of my conversation. Because again, like I was sharing earlier, that autopilot is still there. I'm still watching how I'm navigating my relationships because my old habits, that tendency to worry more about what you'll think about what I'm saying right now is right there under the surface. Um, And so through that, you know, is again, this continued conversation around loss. Can I continue to lose these aspects of me that don't serve me? And can my relationships continue to hold the space for me in my more full expression. Have you done a lot of work with quantum physics? I'm very familiar um, with the area of quantum physics and really the way I think it, and it's funny you're asking this, I was just putting together another presentation (laughs) for the circle um, where I'll be introducing the aspect of quantum physics that I think is really integral for all of us humans, which is the reality that we're energetic beings interacting in an energetic universe. So when you say words like vibration and how I'm impacted by the world around me and how I impact the world around me, um, I think, again, this is another area that for a very long time had for a lot of people been considered woo-woo. What is this quantum world? And I, I believe that there's a very practical reality that again, is present already in our experiences, usually of being stuck, that we can then begin to harness to create change. And again, I think it's the simple reality that we are energetic beings living in an energetic world. How do you use some of the quantum physics theories to help you in your life? So for me, um, it was becoming conscious of the energy that I was living in, yeah. my, the energy my body was inhabiting. And I'll just continue to use words that I, I explored earlier. I realized my body was stuck in fight or flight, an energy of fear or worry all of the time. That was then the energy that my body, my nervous system was sending out to the environment around me. And we impact the environment around me. We feel when someone else is feeling fearful. We know when there's a shift in the energy in the world around us and it might impact us. Um, So for me, it was really understanding the energy of the body that I was living in, the energy, again, that was communicating with my mind. I was stuck in the energy of fear. So I couldn't have any thought outside of a fear-based one. I was stuck in survival. Why I had no passion or purpose, that is inconsequential when your body thinks it's attempting to stay alive. So for me, again, it was foundational. Becoming conscious to that reality allowed me to do different things, to make new choices, to become consciously grounded in the present moment where more often than not, there weren't anything stressful Mm. happening around me. It extended when I learned how to use my breath to regulate my body so that I, over time, began to not send messages of stress to my mind. I began to send messages that we're okay, we're calm, there's nothing stressful happening because my breathing was changing, my heart was changing. I was changing the energy that I was inhabiting. And then by extension over time, I was changing the energy that I was impacting my environment around me with. So it was very, it's foundational in the context of when we think about ourselves as a system of mind, body, soul, the extension of that is what is the energy in this system? How is it showing up in the world and how is it impacting the world around us and empowering ourselves to create change then in that energy system, which we all can. You mentioned breath work and I know that you do meditation as well. Can you tell us about these practices that you do and others that have helped change your life? So starting with meditation, because we already touched on that a little bit, um, that consciousness check-in that I offered earlier 
is a form of meditative practice. A lot of us think of meditation in a lotus on a cushion and quiet, where for some of us that can be an entry point because when we're sitting, when we're quiet, when maybe our eyes are closed, simply what we're doing is we're tuning out the world around us so that our focal point can be on our internal experience. How is your body in this moment? If you're not distracted by what's happening around you, you can be, it can become, you can become more present to your body, to your thoughts. And a lot of times that's why it begins in a meditation practice. Though if you're like me and a lot of us listening, I'm sure that idea of even sitting alone, or if you've ever tried to sit alone in silence, that's when we meet our racing thoughts. That's when our body feels so agitated and uncomfortable. I actually can't sit down. So for a lot of us, I actually didn't begin a meditative a meditation practice early on. I began with those consciousness check-ins because the practice is still the same. Can I become consciously aware, bear witness to what's happening? What's happening in my body? What's happening outside of my body? Can I be present to it? And for a lot of us, like I said, that that stopping, that doing meditation in that traditional sense can feel very overwhelming, especially if we lived a lot of trauma in our past. Stopping can become too uncomfortable. So over time, I, you know, do now have, have moments where I sit in meditation. For me, it's those moments where I'm able to clear all of my attention from elsewhere and really tune in to how am I doing right now, right? What's coming up for me from that deeper place? Um, so for some of us that want to begin with that sitting practice, I definitely suggest not putting the timer on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, like I always say, a meditation minute might as well be a meditation hour because what we're doing is we want to empower ourselves to the practice itself, not judge how it went because chances are it'll be uncomfortable. It'll be hard, especially if it's new. Though again, we're retraining our brain to work in that new way. And then expanding on that, our breath can be incredibly powerful. Our breath and the way our body is naturally breathing throughout the day is one of the messengers that I was talking about earlier sending you know, information to our brain. And for a lot of us, when our body was dysregulated early in time and never had the opportunity to go back into that calm, the simple way we're breathing throughout our day is sending those messages of stress to our body. So for me, when I became aware of that, how shallow my breathing all always was, how hunched even my posture was that I couldn't even get a full breath in, what I came to realize is that consciously, that's continuing to send my brain messages that your body is stressed. It's huddled over, it's scared, and it's breathing as if there's a threat present. So harnessing the fact that we can all be very intentional, we can even change the way we breathe. I began to develop a daily practice of breathing. Again, like I shared earlier, one small daily promise. It started with having one moment in my day where I practice not breathing really shallow from my chest. I practice breathing really deeply from my belly. And that began when I put a hand on my belly. I started by laying down because my posture was really hard for me at first to even get that deep breath into my belly. And I just began practicing teaching my body how to breathe from my belly. And why the belly? The belly actually sends a different message, not that you're stressed, that you're calm, that you can get those big deep breaths in because there is no threat around you. So just like that small daily promise of one consciousness check-in, I set the alarm on my phone and I added onto that. Okay, now when that alarm goes off, I'm going to practice breathing from my belly. And then I'm going to practice that as much as I can because I knew for me, my body was saying, Mayday, you're stressed, you're huddled, you're stressed, there's there's danger around you, you're hypervigilant. Where is it? Your racing thoughts will find it if they think fast enough. And I had to reverse that pattern. So I did that through that action of not even like I said, didn't have even that. I didn't have an hour in the morning where I did all these things. I set time in my day to begin the practice that then I continued to build the foundation upon. Nicole, when you started becoming the holistic psychologist and you didn't just look at as psychology as being science-based, having psychologists look at things at a certain lens, was there any pushback for you when you stepped into that that field of being a little bit different from what the traditional sort of psychology was? I'm smiling um, because even throughout my program, um, this idea of a little bit different is something that's always resonated with me. There were certain aspects of things that I was learning, um, particular around this idea that we need to be what is called a blank screen or not a person in the room. There was just certain aspects of, of the thinking that I was being taught that always just made me 
didn't really resonate fully. Um, and so I'm giggling at this idea that I always think I was a little different in terms of my practice. I was very much mindfulness-based when I opened up my practice to begin with. And so just to answer your question more directly, when I saw social media as an opportunity to begin to share my truth, which for me was an action in living that truth, again, something I didn't do for a very long time. And I also saw it as an opportunity to find that community of people, like I was saying earlier, and to connect and to share the resources and the knowledge that I was coming up with, with them, there was a, a part of concern of, around how will my field think of this? What will my mm-hmm. colleagues think of this? Here I am now a little bit more different speaking about the body, speaking about this idea of a soul. How will this be received? And honestly, Sarah, I was very surprised by how resonating it was for other people in my field, how I was hearing from practitioners all around the world that were coming to this realization on their own or that had questions about limitations, the same questions I had and or who were updating their practices themselves. So for me, um, it, it was obviously very supportive to hear and validating to hear that regardless of where you are and how you were thinking, these kind of awarenesses were beginning to come up for many others. So of course, I would be lying if I said that there wasn't pushback. Um, there still remains pushback from some in the field who, the way I understand it, are you know particularly challenged by some of these ideas. And I can relate to that. There was very much, I would again be lying if I said, I adopt it. When I was sharing earlier, I had to unlearn a lot of beliefs. They were around a lot of the things I was taught, a lot of the things that I thought about myself that, again, I learned through the field, through the system, through different ways that we hear information. Um, so for me, I, I felt even very challenged by some of these ideas until I lived into them. Mm. Until then, I saw so many other humans, regardless of where you're living in the world, living into these ideas. And like I said, there, there are different levels of challenge that I still see from some in the field, though overwhelmingly, it's been incredibly supportive and very aligned. Like I said, regardless of where you are, a lot of these awarenesses are becoming really universal. Nicole, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? The best advice actually um, came from a supervisor in the field very early on when I was first learning how to do the practice of therapy uh, in, in one of my classes. I forget how, how it came to be. And I was speaking about a client that I had had that had anxiety, very similar to myself. Um, my supervisor knew enough of me at that time personally that knew that I was a very anxious individual. And we were talking about this case And the supervisor at that time made a suggestion that lives with me to this day in terms of the way I navigate the world itself. And that suggestion was, Nicole, especially in these, in all occasions, though, especially in these moments where what you're hearing from a client, a patient is so similar to what you think you experienced, this is an opportunity to ask them how it was for them not to assume. So for instance, if someone's saying, Nicole, I'm so anxious, instead of my mind saying, oh, okay, because I know what anxious is, it's racing thoughts, it's little tick-like behaviors, it's tension, that's what they mean. Instead of saying, oh yeah, it's anxious and, and then allowing them to continue with the story or whatever they were sharing, this would be an opportunity to say, what does anxious mean for you? And what that taught me in the the moment, while I didn't understand, especially when your mind does hear that similarity as all of our mind does, and we're going to paint my version of anxiety over what that person says, even if it's completely dissimilar, because that's what our mind does, remember, that opportunity to ask that question really highlights the subjectivity of all of us, not just someone in a clinical room, right, talking about anxiety, the subjectivity of life that I could be saying words and having experiences and making a meaning of them and having emotions about them, that the person next to me living the same experience might be having completely different. Though what our mind does is like we were talking about earlier, it's going to anticipate, it's going to imagine, it's going to project, you know, it's going to use us, not that person. So for me, that was the most impactful piece of advice that, like I said, I've expanded from the clinical room into life in general and to really understand that we're all viewing the world very subjectively through a lens of our past, often based in the dysregulation of our body. And our mind will imagine what we think other people mean using ourselves as the prototype until we ask 
otherwise and understanding the subjectivity then of ourselves and how we are coloring our current moments with our past, not with what's actually happening for a lot of us, that consciousness again can become that pathway for an incredible, incredible transformation. So for me, um, I lived into that truth. I continue to, I remind myself of that often, especially when what I'm hearing feels very similar. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? The lesson that is taking me and I'm still learning of this is especially in terms of receiving when we're thinking about, you know, in relationships, this comes up a lot. Um, One of the core things I think that we all want in relationships is love and support. You know, we're all looking to be seen, to be heard, to be the the unique being that I am. And in being myself in that self-expression, we usually come upon these two words that we wish and we want to be loved for it, you know, accepted and loved for it. And in times of difficulty, again, this is what we need as humans and have done since the beginning of time as humans, we bond together. We look for another human. Like I said, we are interpersonal at our core to help us. So love and support um, is, again, quite a universal need, emotional need, if you will, for all of us humans. And what I was meaning when I said being in receipt of reception or receiving it is that you actually are playing a role in, in receiving love in receiving support, meaning I continue to watch myself in moments where I don't allow it in, where I make it not the exact love or the support that I think I want it in that moment. Or when I say, come love me, come support me. And then I hold my hand at a distance and I don't let that person do it. And again, for me, all of this originated in childhood where I didn't have that emotionally supportive caregiver or parent to connect with me. So that love and support into adulthood at its core feels very unfamiliar, very vulnerable and very uncomfortable. And I share this as my continued learning lesson because I think a lot of us just feel like it's either there in the environment or the person is giving it to me or it's not. And I continue to witness myself playing an active role. It's not as easy as, is this person loving or supporting me in this moment? It's, am I letting it in? Am I being vulnerable to even share the honest reality or my honest truth in that moment of what's happening? And then am I allowing the person to support me in the way that they can in that moment? And a lot of us, because again, in a vulnerable experience in childhood, we didn't have that love. We didn't have that support. Maybe the person we relied on actually caused us harm ourselves, right? We don't do that. So my greatest lesson continues as I find myself in and continue to be in relationship with others is really around love, around support, around how am I giving and receiving that in my life and how am I playing that role and not focusing as much as I often did on finding the person that's going to love me in the exact way. Because you know what I realized, Sarah? I wouldn't have let it in. Yes. Beautiful. What's your favorite prayer? It's a really, really great question. And I think my favorite prayer is a prayer of, of presence and a prayer, you know, kind of around being connected with me. For me, it's around my heart. Um, if we want to localize where I believe this essence, the spirit, the soul lives, um, I believe it lives, you know, in our heart space. So for me, my daily prayer, um, and I actually love this question because I, I try to live, you know, in what I imagine is a daily prayer. And for me, my daily prayer also in my journal that I write every morning is like I was sharing, not just being consciously present, being consciously present to my heart in particular. So I make that prayer in my intention I set in my journal to throughout my day, be consciously connected to my heart. And then I live that prayer each and every moment. I make that choice to remain conscious and present to my heart in my daily moments. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? Um, I think my mystical experiences happen Um, each and every time when I'm really in full connection with the natural world. For as long as I can remember, I loved being outside. I loved being in nature. There was, that was this one space where I didn't feel as anxious. Of course, I still brought my anxiety into the, into the (laughs) woods when I was a kid hiking or whatever I was doing outside. However, um, the energy of the natural environment for me was 
brought me a little closer to that presence that I was talking about. And now that I'm aware of, you know, how dysregulated my body was, and I've done a lot of healing and I'm able to be in that very calm, receptive nervous system state. um, For me, my mystical experiences continue to happen in nature. And what I define kind of as the mystical is when I'm in that kind of full state of, of connection, when whether it's again with the trees around you or the bigness of I live, I'm very grateful I get to live with mountains, literally, as I shared with you as my backdrop, um, having those moments where I feel just so connected to, again, the nature, something big, something within me, whatever it is, um, that's is and continues to be where I kind of define my mystical moments. And I try to make a conscious effort to be out in those moments in that nature as often as I can. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness to me is finding rediscovering, because I assure you, everyone listening, you do have that inner compass, that inner knowing, that soul, that essence. There is something that makes you uniquely you in there. And you are all destined, if you living into that truth, whatever it might be, is a life of greatness. Because the even the practice of really being con- connected to that deeper knowing, to that passion, to the purpose, to who you are, is very radical in an environment for, for a lot of us who are distracted, disconnected, focusing on everything outside of ourselves, really being intimately knowledgeable and knowing and connected to that place within is a life of greatness. And from that place then, right, you can continue to walk the journey that's right for you because there is no one path of greatness. What we do looks different for each of us. And I believe it's driven from that that deeper place. So any of us taking that journey back to ourself, in my opinion, is walking into a life of greatness. Nicole LaPera, thank you for stepping into the unknown and doing all the work that you that you do because it has made such a difference in so many people's lives. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah, for carving out your time and energy and having a chat with me and all of the work you're putting out um, to change the collective. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.